0: Anne's idea is bad. I mean, ask me how I feel about your idea.
1: (laughs) Too late. So I think we should start this month with a big hunk of gratitude. We um, we just had, by which I mean Liz just led this fantastic <laughs> fundraiser on Facebook, which is our annual mod appreciation week. And so many of you really showed up. Now, the folks listening to Crack cup, uh, many of you are patrons already who are supporting us in a way that makes us sustainable, but also really went over and boosted and helped with the mod fundraiser. Tell us, tell us about it, Liz. How did it go? <laughs> Well, it was initially
0: an epic fail, which was terrifying because we are done having the ability to access grant funding because they only provide grant funding for the first two years. And so in the first few days, it was like a couple thousand dollars. And if it had continued in the trajectory it was in, we were going to have to lay people off, isn't the right word because they're not staff, but reduce service, right? That would eliminate the group pretty much because you can't run it on a volunteer basis because of the topic and the size of it and also it would have a massive impact on the mods and so it was a hard couple days as always i took it really personally i was like i wrote my message (laughs) wrong what have i done admin told me not to make a wall of text (laughs) <laughs> but I thought a wall of text with a graphic was enough. There's so many Unitarians, <laughs> they love words. This wall of text, my Facebook to- post, way shorter than Anne's average sermon. I don't understand way, why it isn't working. way shorter. <laughs> and then I realized it wasn't getting in front of people that the Facebook algorithm had buried it, which is always a fight. That was really hard this time because the stakes weren't my own personal failure. I was failing other people. My brain did freeze like Monday and Tuesday when it was going really badly. It was very... Very hard. <laughs> -hmm. And there's a technique. Instead of habitating in the middle of the pain of the failure, Mm -hmm. I think about it like it's a story. And a story that is so and so succeeded, and then they did this, and they succeeded, and they did this, and they succeeded, is a boring story. So I try to zoom out and I say, okay, you're the hero, and you're battling the really difficult situation. And then when everything seems very bleak, you fight back, and then, and blah, blah, blah. And then it's an even
1: more amazing story. And I've used this since I was a child all kinds of bad things right right the coaching program i'm taking one of the things is to um to take on a stance in a difficult moment and yell bring it on (laughs) (laughs) and it's like you're running headlong into the issue and it does
0: help you unfreeze your brain because it kind of pulls you out of the immediate pain a little bit and gives you a little bit of perspective Mm -hmm. that and the war in ukraine were the right little bit of perspective perspective What we did was when we realized people weren't seeing it, and then a whole bunch of people started to say, this is the first I've heard of it, three posts in. And when we realized that, one of the things we did was in our Let's Fight the Facebook overlords, they can't tell you that you can't donate to this if you don't want to, (laughs) which had a picture of a kitten. And had anger and had screwing over Facebook, which are three things that people like online. And had a question and had a question. Oh, that's right. One of my posts had a question and Facebook is trying to promote questions more. And so then the, the let's game the algorithm post had a question, a kitten, outrage and screwing over Facebook. And I asked people if they if this was the first they'd heard of it to say first in the comments. And so then, a whole bunch of people who aren't the usual Liz circle commented on it. In the end, the, people are still donating even though we've shut things down, which is really lovely. Nice, <laughs> and we're at I think twenty six
1: thousand dollars this morning, oh. which is wonderful. Which is like eight hundred thousand in Canadian dollars, right?
0: <laughs> it translates into about eighty dollars a day, and it's three or four hours of work. Nice. So. Not taking into account the 24-7 call situation, (laughs) so it's not entirely paying a person like you would pay an employee, but it is so much better Mm -hmm. than what it has been historically. Um, and so that is very exciting because normally moderating is done by volunteers, but normally moderating doesn't ask nearly what we ask of people. And so being able to con- compensate people makes me feel like I'm not taking advantage of people and ruining their lives. And right. people were happy to do it. Like if everyone pitches in five dollars, we've got more than enough, which is what most people did. Some people did Twenty, a few people did a hundred, which was really wonderful. And in the end, we're now sustaining the group with the people in the group instead of Aww. with funding or whatever, which nice. is really nice. And which maintains its independence because when you have a group that is funded by the grant of a religious body, the UU funding panel has been magnificent about total independence. We do what we want. Right. If you have to be funded
1: by a religious body, that's the one you that's want. That's <laughs> the one you want.
0: Yeah. They've had they've had nothing to do with directing
1: anything like right. that.
0: They've been amazing. But it's still nice to have a thing funded by the people in it
1: you know what I want to notice is that in church life we tend to do things the same way for a hundred years until Mm. they break but we usually wait until they've been broken for a while so we have like squashed our souls in the process of oh but we're just trying harder at the old thing and the old thing and the thing I'm learning hanging out with you here in this online space is that what works in one fundraiser three months later might not work in the next one. They change the algorithm. Because they change the algorithm and I think that's such a good message for all of us (laughs) is that do not trust. That the algorithm stays the same. No, society's algorithms are
0: changing. I've been oh, watching history rapidly. and viewed from a historical lens, this will appear to be the collapse of a society. Yeah. Everything's changing so fast and who knows what will happen, but we're like in the middle of what someone will say, the blah, blah, age, revolution, fall of the yada yada. Mm-hmm. And if even you and I society would even measure as its own society, it might be considered part of the fall of the
1: British Empire. I don't know. Right. <laughs> this concept that I've been trying to understand for myself, and it came after reading the book Braiding Sweet grass. And what I was thinking about is how we talk about the seventh UU principle, the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Mm-hmm. And if I ask you to just close your eyes and imagine the interdependent web of all existence as an actual web. Okay, got an image? Yep. Where are you in the web? <laughs> in the sense. <center>. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The size of the web relative to the size of me. I was picturing a web maybe 50 times as big as me.
1: The interdependent web of all existence, of which I am, the center, is not the actual seventh principle. But I do that, too, like I was, you know, when you try to create something for people to try, you try it first. So i like, I will imagine the interdependent web of all existence. OK, and there it is radiating out from me like I am the queen spider in the web. And That's I like, exactly what I'm imagining. Wait a minute. I don't think I'm actually the center of the interdependent web. So where am I? Oh, wait, the web isn't a circle. It's like endless. And that's back to that early religious concept that I could never wrap my head around, right? No beginning, no end, no time, no something. The web is everything. And so I am in it somewhere. Infinitely small. But I am not it. And so... Trying to reimagine that, it takes a lot of pressure off. Like when you're thinking about this thing didn't go quite right. And I'm like, what have I done? It must be me. I suck. Instead of, hmm, now Facebook might be at the center of the interdependent web of existence. <laughs> and it sucks. Um, but it is also our tool, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder, like, what is the work we need to do to stop always putting ourselves in the center? Sometimes it's just remembering that. Oh, wait, hmm, I'm not in the center of the web. <laughs>
0: Well, and humans love to tell each other stories about how important they are. Like you want to feel like you're <laughs> crucially important, right? And I remember going to seminary and it was like changing lives to change the world. And part of the work of seminary is to make you feel like the call is very important. And Unitarian Universalism is very important. When I left that and started hanging out in online spaces and other types of community and was very intentional about not all you use all the time. I had a very strong sense of not only are we not the thing that will change the world, we're an infinitesimally small part of like we can have a big effect from the perspective of a couple of people that we are helping. But from the perspective of the big picture, I'm way less important than I thought I was, which means I can have a nap, which ironically made me much more effective. And I think we... Put ourselves in that position because we overestimate how important we are.
1: Oh, wait, wait, the world can go on without me. (laughs) you know there was a thing that came up in facebook really spoke to me it was this little message where i was feeling like watching the ukraine invasion which is just heartrending, and then thinking about all the wars and suffering around the world and all of the things that are going on the hard things and this little thing popped up in my facebook it says it can be overwhelming to witness experience take in all the injustices of the moment the good news is They're all connected. So if your little corner of work involves pulling at one of the threads, you're helping to unravel the whole damn clock.
0: I think that's a lie.
1: I like it, but I think it's a lie. Oh, right. Bring it on. (laughs) You
0: just said how big the thread is. And often when we pull on a rope, we inspire someone else on the other end of that rope to tug harder, and then you get a tug of war as happens when you post a strong opinion online. Like, it's an ecosystem, right? So when you do one thing strongly, often it provokes a response strongly. So I think it is a very
1: comforting idea about tugging on the thread of the web, but I think maybe it's a lie. Has it occurred to you that tugging on one little thread in your little corner is not necessarily a tug of war? It often ends up, it depends. So the way I experienced this message was like, you know, when you make the mistake of traveling with six necklaces in a bag and then all the chains are tangled together or (laughs) you get a bag from the thrift shop and all the chains are tangled together. I don't have six necklaces, but I know what you mean. Same thing happens with electrical cords. <laughs> right. You know, that feeling of trying to undo the knot and it gets tighter and mm-hmm. the links really, they kind of lock in on themselves and it's mean. It's really hard. Cords are a little bit smoother and chains mm-hmm. are lumpy and bumpy and difficult and cause you great grief. So when you have these this tangled ball of chains, if you try to pull them apart, they knot harder, right? Which is kind of mm-hmm. what you're saying, this tug of war thing. The way to undo something is actually to ease the tension, to loosen the things. So you're actually pushing them towards each other instead of trying to pull them apart, even though you're trying uh, to get them apart. And so this idea that you solve messes by pulling harder is not a good idea. <laughs> But the gentle teasing and wiggling and jiggling can sometimes undo what seems like an intractable knot.
0: This is what Kathy does whenever I am immature. I'll send her messages. I'll be like, blah, 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 larger you, you is blah, blah, blah. And then she'll say, I feel like you have a lot of intensity around this. And I'm not <laughs> sure I understand exactly where it's. Can you talk more about your feelings? And I'm like, blah, blah, blah. Kathy. That, that tell me about how you feel shit really works, like even on me. Uh, oh
1: my goodness. <laughs> you were right about <laughs> asking people how they feel. Wait, is that a correction corner? <laughs> <laughs> Anne and I were talking about
0: how we want to have more corners. This is a spot where we would really appreciate listener feedback. We want to have like segments so that it's not just one long rambling conversation about whatever.
1: Not that we couldn't ramble for hours. Yeah,
0: I'd like to have an advice corner, but nobody ever asks me for advice. So we're
1: going to need to have unsolicited advice corner. No, le- No, let's be brave about that. If you would like advice from Anne or Liz, or Anne and Liz, send it to us. Send us your questions. We would love to tackle this Information together.
0: Information about how in the show notes if you're not in the Facebook group. Yay. Um, Yes. So I said we need more corners and then... You said Corrections Corner, which I totally forgot Corrections Corner was a
1: thing. So if you are newer to the podcast, in the beginning, Liz said, you know, cool podcasts have these things like little corners. And it's like they have a thing where they say, oh, this is Corrections Corner. So we we had Corrections Corner at the beginning because you use love to correct one another. (laughs) (laughs) But also we wanted to model making mistakes and owning up to it. Corrections Corner. So we are reviving it in this moment to say, hmm, that thing where you thought that the feelings thing was only about me. Turns out it's about you too. Ah. (laughs) Yeah, people have not been sending in corrections for the podcast. That seems a little weird. Corrections Corner was something that spoke to us and then
0: clearly it has (laughs) fallen off the list. All right. So any ideas for corners? People should send them in. Because there's not been enough correcting. How do they send them in, Liz? I'll put information in the show notes. Either if you're in the Patreon group, there's a Facebook group. If you're a patron or if you're very, very strongly would like to be in the group, but don't have enough money to be a patron, contact me. Uh, otherwise, there's a, I'll put a link for how else you can contact us if you're not on Facebook or whatever.
1: Awesome. And if all of that is too hard, just send your message directly to the Hysterical <laughs> Society group and tag Liz and say, Liz, Liz, I have an idea. Because you know then what? everybody no. will know. That'll that will be fun. Not-
0: going to appreciate us using her 140,000 person facebook group as a messaging service to Liz that's I think it would be adorable you do that I'm gonna have to have a long conversation with Kathy about how she feels about that And (laughs) and we all know I'm not good at that I think you're excellent at that don't do that people you can there's a form on the website I'll put a link in the information oh and I also wanted to say speaking of the patron group that we have now transitioned to when doing the editing because we have enough support on Patreon for that. And Yay, I just need Anwen. to tell everybody I am so grateful because I'm more than happy to spout off endlessly with Anne. But editing down what we have said to be remotely coherent and not endlessly boring and didactic is so many hours of work. And Anwen is doing it now. And I am so grateful to all of the patrons for getting me out of that cage. And now the podcast can last forever because it
1: was teetering on the edge before. Want to know a fun aside about now that Anwen is uh, editing the podcast? Yes. So one of Anwen's tools is that when there is a transition that is not smooth and she is helping us transition with a tone, the tone that plays, the chime, Uh my dog thinks is the doorbell. (laughs) And you know what my dog does when the doorbell rings? loses her mind so if I am listening to the podcast I must either listen to it with earphones on or I must hold on to the dog's collar and soothe her and say no no it's in the phone it's in the phone bad noise is in the phone all right chime
0: (laughs) so the thing that I wanted to talk about Like the big difficult topic, because by the way, I think that we should start having big difficult topic corner because we talked about the food thing and we talked Do you remember when you talked about when you were not um, vaccinating your children and why
1: going into the COVID era, which was very brave. And can we just add and I have since changed my mind before you leave that hanging there for people who weren't listening. Yes. But that's a really good episode.
0: And we want to talk about polyamory at some point and finance Mm -hmm. at some point. So I think we should have difficult conversations corner in which we talk about something very, very challenging. And the one that Anne and I have been wrestling with a lot. Some point this month, someone made reference to the eighth principle process in Canada, which is we have. Seven principles. I can link to them in the show notes if you don't know them, which are things like the interdependent web, inherent worth of dignity of every person, the one I don't like about democracy, a few others. The
1: rules about how to be nice to one another.
0: Yeah, they're all things that they're actually quite useful. They're beautiful as a guiding thing. I really like them. But you know what? I couldn't say them from memory. And then last May at our annual general meeting was an eighth principle process which I was not there for because it was at a
1: meeting, (laughs) right? Which may come up as part of our topic today. (laughs) Okay, you sum up this part you were there so I like just the grand overview is that for many years there has been conversation in Unitarian Universalist circles about adding an eighth principle about anti-racism and other oppressions (laughs) and there are different versions of it it started in the States it's come to Canada there was a different Canadian version proposed in a report to the May annual meeting last year so this report was delivered at the meeting that they would like people to consider the idea of adopting this eighth principle this was not not a motion on the floor. It was just an invitation in a report, important report about the state of racism and anti-racism in our congregations. So the invitation was there to learn about research and then hopefully someone, some group of people would bring a motion to the floor Next year or a year later or something to vote on the 8th principle. But somebody from the floor said, why can't we vote now? Long story short, there was a vote. It was actually against our governance model. Like they broke the rules in the governance model. Because the
0: people voting are voting on behalf of congregations and they don't necessarily know what their congregation would want them to
1: vote. I think is the reason why there's supposed to be notice. yeah. And there's a process to suspend rules, but it doesn't apply to this kind of rule. Anyway, messy, messy, messy. People all doing the best they knew how in the moment, but what we ended up with was a vote and it passed yes, but not overwhelmingly, like, I don't know, Mm -hmm. 65 or 70% or something. And then there was a lot of distress in the room. And Mm -hmm. then a lot of distress rippled through congregations. And then the CUC had a little, oh my goodness, this broke our rules. And so it was voided, right? It was just being held Mm -hmm. as an undone thing. So rather than have the people who had been filled with joy at an eighth principle, yes, be left hanging, waiting for someday someone to bring it forward again. The CUC planned a special Canadian Unitarian Council, planned a special meeting in November to do the vote properly, right? To give advance notice, congregations have time to talk about it, send people ready to vote the way that the people wanted to direct their voters. But there has been so much distress around this process. And the distress has to do with so many different things. So I know you have distress, Liz. Why don't you start with that?
0: I have distress about the role of shame in it. I have a little of distress about investing this much energy in the eighth principle process. So... At the beginning, I decided I don't know that I deserve a heavy stake in this because I can't say the first seven from memory. So why would I get so fired up about whether or not there was an eight? So I'm not sure I've earned a vote here. I was distressed when someone told me, and I will give you an opportunity for (laughs) instant corrections corner, that Anne made a speech telling everyone (laughs) that if they didn't vote yes at that meeting, they should all be ashamed of themselves which I'm very nervous about shame as that a tool for... is not what I said. Right. I'm also distressed by how your words mutated by the time they got to me, which was not a long trail and was not an unreliable people trail.
1: <laughs> so why don't you correct it? So when I was given the <laughs> opportunity to speak at that meeting where the surprise vote happened, I was speaking about how this may feel new to some of you because you didn't know that it was coming But it is not new in our work and in our agenda and in our national programming or in our congregations. So we've been talking about this, which is kind of one of the key problems here. Talk, 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 talk. We've been talking about this for years in one way or another. It might be directly as an eighth principle, might be adjacent, like... Talking about truth and reconciliation, talking about racism, talking about all these important things that fit under the eighth principle. And just trying to say that it doesn't have to be perfect in this moment. What we're doing is affirming something in the world and saying to people, we hear you. And so so one of the great arguments that comes up is, oh, this stuff is covered under the first seven principles. Mm-hmm. And recognizing that, like Liz, many of the people cannot list them. <laughs> and- <laughs> yep. <laughs> The thing is, when marginalized folks in our congregation say, well, that's great. It may be technically covered under the first seven principles, but that's not working. I'm experiencing harm. We need something explicit. It's hard not to listen to that. Okay, but if
0: it didn't work to cover it under the first seven, adding more of the same thing, it seems to me like more talking, more meeting, and more resolutions. The idea is that it's not the
1: same thing. It's that it's a specific, separate thing.
0: And I didn't study it. I wasn't part of the study group and I'm not a person of colour. So I would not vote against that. They said this is the thing they want to do. Right. I feel like were I to stand in the way, I'd need to be way more educated about their experience. And one of my principles that is way more important than what I thought about the eighth principle is when someone's tackling a thing, stay the hell out of the way. Unless you want to make that your thing that you invest a whole bunch in. And then you would have a voice.
1: So you don't make trouble. You don't make trouble
0: for the sake of making trouble. I had nothing to do with it. It was also there was a time management situation because much of the process for it was occurring in November. And so my options were attend a bunch of meetings about these principles or run the fundraiser for Flaming Chalice International, which would have a meaningful impact on development work in Africa led by African people. And so I a am not sure I'd be useful in a meeting anyway and b. It's clear to me which one of those is is a better use of a Liz. You were taking an eighth principle action. Mm -hmm. You were doing eighth principle work. Oh, yeah. My issue is not with anti-racism. My issue is with channeling our efforts for change into more discussion and
1: resolutions. Right. So I don't want to dodge the question you asked me. Which is what did you say? You did dodge it. <laughs> no, no, it's it's story. I have a story. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I was speaking about how even though this may be messy or not perfect, like trust your gut, trust your heart. What does your congregation believe in? Does it stand mm-hmm. behind anti-racism? So that's the nice speech I was trying to give until my microphone was <laughs> cut off by someone who thought that I wasn't allowed to speak because I wasn't a delegate, but ministers are allowed to speak. So there I am. Okay, true confessions, a seething ball of anger. (laughs) Just like, "Mm, cut me off, of course you cut me off. Later in the meeting, Our executive director, <laughs> Vida Ng, who recognized that uh, that was a mistake. It's very dangerous to cut Anne off, says Vita. I believe that Reverend Anne um, was cut off incorrectly. And if you would like to complete your thought, we would like to give you that opportunity. But you had a bunch of new thoughts by that point. <laughs> I was a seething ball of anger, right? Mm. I'm sitting in the center of my web in my little pocket of stewing resentment, not my highest, best, calmest self. Right? Not in the middle of my beautiful speech that was flowing from some meaningful place in my heart, she says, hopefully. <laughs> I'm mad and I'm resentful. And now my microphone is turned on. <laughs> mad, resentful with microphone. Story of Twitter. Oh, and I want to say I still stand 100% behind the sentence that I am about to tell you that I said. <laughs> But it was not interpreted in the way that I meant it, partly probably because it was pushed out through clenched teeth, right? Mm. I said, if we vote no in this moment, I don't know how we recover from that. Mm. And what people heard was, there is no answer other than yes. Or they heard, you should be ashamed of yourself if you don't vote yes in this moment Mm -hmm. and that is not what i meant what i meant was in a moment when the opportunity to hear marginalized people and respond graciously is handed to you if it's not going to harm you to do this thing not in a substantial like life-threatening kind of Mm -hmm. way yes is the answer yeah because that's the caring answer that's the kind answer recognizing you're right you know something i don't know Mm -hmm. and i need to listen and we've talked for decades about why Canadian congregations are predominantly white and don't necessarily mirror the communities that they're in. If you have some kind of disability, if you have economic challenges, if you are a marginalized person because of your race or your identity or your location or your story, there are barriers to inclusion in our congregation. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be listening to people. So when I said, if we vote no... (laughs) If we vote no in this moment, when the vote is on the table, I don't know how we come back from this. Mm -hmm. I meant this is a moment in history where we're going to have to explain generations later in some beautiful book somebody writes why we voted no. And I can't come up with a good reason. I think one of the things that people brought up that was
0: a concern with the Eighth Principle was lifting up anti-racism as opposed to saying we are accountably dismantling oppression. That this one in particular is more important than the others. I think that's one of the things people brought up. I strongly empathize with what you just said and I mm-hmm. strongly empathize with the people who said these are the reasons that we have concerns. What my concern is with is how strong the sentiment was of can you believe that there are some people who aren't voting for this those racists should be ashamed of themselves and it's not that i would argue i'm not racist i think we're all racist and i don't have good evidence for me being less racist than most that is not my issue my issue is with imagining people who disagree with us in a very simplistic way think that's dangerous.
1: I want to, I actually want to talk about some of the reasons people voted no. Okay. In November, Canadian Unitarian Universalists voted yes to an eighth principle. We now have eight principles. Mm -hmm. We're only a tiny, politely bit smug (laughs) about that. The principle has changed. Uh, In the May meeting, it shifted because from feedback, the Principle ended up being individual and communal action that accountably dismantles racism and systemic barriers to full inclusion in ourselves and in our institutions. We had a 95% yes vote. Oh. That is not 95% of individuals. That is 95% of the delegates voting on behalf of their congregations. Okay. Right. So, for instance, at Westwood, uh, it was not, it was a yes. We sent two delegates to vote yes, but it was a scant yes. It wasn't a big yes. Mm-hmm. So, when we say that there's a 95% yes vote, that doesn't mean that 95% of Canadians, right. Canadian UUs, voted yes. Because our
0: democracy is
1: all messed up. And ironically, designed in such a way as to disenfranchise the minorities. And that's one of the things (laughs) that has come out of this process is that if our governance models are barriers to inclusion. And if they play into favoritism for different cultures or different ways of experience, experiencing governance. Or
0: silencing the minority by their very nature.
1: Right. Or be having the power to turn off my microphone.
0: Oops. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's just me being cheeky. There's also a barrier to entry in that that process, there's a reason I didn't attend, right? Because in order to get into how we make decisions you have to have a phenomenally high tolerance for reading procedural documents, following Roberts's rules, listen to everybody say they're two minutes, blah, blah, blah. I'm not a person right. who can pay attention through all of that. Right. I don't need to be in governance, but if you systemically disenfranchise everyone who doesn't have a high tolerance for very high barriers to entry in terms of attention, mm-hmm. moving into a society that is all about an attention economy, right. you have disdefranchised everyone who is capable of helping UUism participate in the larger social conversation so that's right. not a thing that we're doing that's bad for me <laughs> mm-hmm. but by systematically shutting out everyone who fits my profile i think we've really damaged our ability to reach out in the world the same way we've talked about barrier to entry for marginalized people i often will hear from ministers when they're talking about something well but my congregants haven't done the work right so they didn't come to this Conversation about racism having done the work, or they didn't come to this conversation about ability having done the work, and then the disabled people have to educate them or the allies or whatever. And I understand why people say that because it Mm -hmm. can be exhausting, particularly if it's someone from a marginalized population having that conversation over and over again. But people don't have that kind of time. It's like the guy telling you as a single mother that you should be on the board. Like, if we say everybody needs to have done all this to become a part of the anti such and such conversation, we've definitely shut out people like me but we've also shut out anyone who has to do a job and raise kids or who has multiple jobs or and these are usually people of the groups that we're actually trying to involve and this is of particular concern to me this month because I participated in a polyamory forum and you could Mm -hmm. see the fallout from the pain of having led the eighth principle conversations where in my understanding and I was not there sometimes people said some really hurtful things and so the people were trying who led it were trying to set it up in such a way that people wouldn't say hurtful things to polyamorous people Mm -hmm. and it was five hours of pre-reading and 27 minutes of introduction to try and set it up so that people couldn't say hurtful things. And I was left feeling like I don't want the conversation about inclusivity of polyamorous people to only be accessible to people who can and are willing Mm -hmm. to do five hours of pre-work and then 27 minutes of setting up the conversation when we have it. Like, right. It's like if I want to do a mail out from the church and instead of putting stamps on the envelopes, I say... I'm sending this newsletter only to people who are willing to walk through the ch- to the church in the middle of winter. Now it's three people, right? It wasn't worth the cost of savings
1: on the stamps. Many of our processes have a big information load and then very little like gentle learning mm-hmm. and productive interaction. I wonder... What would it take to make gatherings attractive to people and useful to people Mm -hmm. and safer places that people want to be at? And I think that's Mm -hmm. a lot of the work that you're trying to do with Mirth and Dignity, right? You're trying to find different ways for people to access life or information or ideas or stuff. It's certainly
0: the work I did this week. So this week I did the very thing that pisses me off when it's done at the meeting, I had a wall of text in my fundraiser thing and just that's too high of a barrier to entry. Right. That was a three minute read. That was a too long of a read. It got completely buried. Maybe the reason I'm so passionate about we need to pay the postage, whatever the postage is, we need to pay the postage so that people can see what we're trying to say is because my work is so tangibly, if you don't pay the postage, you're done. Whereas I think in things like general meetings, we kind of pretend to ourselves like it because it's not quite so obvious when you don't pay the postage.
1: Well, and I would argue that the vote that happened in May happened because we are anxious about our governance models, Mm -hmm. right? We have been following Robert's rules. And yet we know that Robert's rules is maybe a little bit stinky, right? (laughs) That it's it's kind of they who have the gavel (laughs) rule the meeting and you can use Robert's rules from the floor or from the table as a weapon and the anxiousness around, are we getting the rules right? Are we getting the process right? We have a parliamentarian and even then nobody can know all the nuance exists on one side. And then on the other side is, wait, if the way we are using this tool stops what could be a beautiful thing, right? Like a spontaneous call from the floor to pass an eighth principle in the moment is an emotional, exciting thing. And our rule system says no and We wanted to believe that maybe it could say yes. So I would say that underneath that is a recognition that our governance model isn't entirely inclusive. There's a real irony to the moment when someone says, with regards to the motion, whether or not to dismantle systems that traditionally
0: oppress people, we have a mover and then we have a seconder, and if we have a such and such majority and everybody gets a two minute thing, blah 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 blah. That whole picture as a demonstration of the systems, I guess, that we'd need to dismantle. So it is simultaneously funny
1: and also a call to action. Funny might be the wrong word. Funny peculiar, not funny, haha. A little bit funny, ha, and yeah. just a this little is, Yeah. Bad funny. It's a dark humor. You um you need to understand the rules to get away with breaking the rules, right? right to manipulate the rules but also if you are naive to the rules you can ask a question that nobody would think to ask which throws people into a I don't know what to do with this moment I just want to come back to I think all the people in the room were doing the best thing they could in the moment the best they knew how in the moment and I think there were people there who said no no this is breaking our rules (laughs) and not we don't want to do this but we want to do this right like we don't want to screw it up there's a piece about exhaustion
0: too so for those of you who don't know how I met Anne it was during response time in our congregation which response time in our congregation (laughs) at the time like response time in all small congregations was supposed to be about the sermon but was a time when anyone aired any grievance that they had about anything remotely tangentially related to the sermon topic or anything that happened to them that week so uh man made a thing about I think we were talking about sexism about how he wants women to have more of a voice but every time he asks a woman to serve on the board of whatever it is those women say no so what's he supposed to do and
1: and made this may have lost my nut
0: (laughs) and as happens i was not a
1: minister then i've grown up a little since that moment
0: this poor poor service leader didn't have the option of turning off your microphone because everyone could hear you just fine without it (laughs) (laughs) And Anne made a speech about exhaustion that I think really matters here. Like when we set up processes to have a voice that demand an intensive amount of time, Mm -hmm. then the people who are in charge of all the child rearing and all of the raising the kids and the cleaning and the cooking.
1: And the working and the raising the the money and the not being free to come to the endless meetings and not having the concentration or the energy to attend the endless meetings because you've also got six kids and... Right. That takes me back to my moment that if I could reword it in the present, I might, but I still mean the same thing. If the people who are experiencing harm in our congregations or barriers to inclusion are asking for something explicit to help us recognize that we have important work to do to take down those barriers, they should have a say. Mm -hmm. And it should matter more than my say, Mm -hmm. right, because I'm not experiencing those same kind of barriers. So you said the
0: reasons why people would vote for the Eighth Principle. What, in your understanding, is the reasons why people
1: would vote against? This is where you're trying to trick me, right? No, this is where (laughs) I think that the
0: important part of a debate or a discussion is for each person to be able to articulately describe the other person's perspective.
1: Well, I think it matters to feel heard, even if you're Mm -hmm. disagreeing with someone, right? Like when Kathy says, how do you feel about it? So I could make you a whole list of why people thought we should vote no or shouldn't have an eighth principle. I'm going to munch them together. One is they were resistant to the process because it didn't actually follow the Roberts Rules of Order and they wanted it to be a clean undisputable process right let's just do it right within the rule system
0: and i cannot imagine being a delegate in charge of voting in that situation because your job is to do what your congregation would have wanted and i legit would have had no idea what my congregation so
1: that's interesting because that's not okay here's me saying a snarky thing (laughs) (laughs) you got one bullet point
0: into the other perspective
1: i can do it no no this is the Another reason people didn't like it was they felt it shouldn't be a principle. Why not? It should be a call to action. There was an argument that it wasn't worded the same way as the other principles. For me, that's just not a thing. But I understand that people who, you know, they their poetic sense of it must all align. It must all be positive statements. It must all blah, blah, blah. Or
0: if they themselves were a part of a group that they felt like if you're naming one group higher right. than the others, the principles should be the general container.
1: Right. And there were people who felt like the principles should be reordered from sort of overarching ideas to specific action ideas. There's a there's an argument that in the U.S., their, their system requires the whole long, detailed, laid-out process of how you change a principle or how you add a principle or whatever. We don't have that in our bylaws. And so that precluded, like, we didn't have... What some people think is the safety net of you move slowly when you change a principle because it's a really big deal. Again, another process issue. All of these things are important to people. I do not mean to discount them, but there were people's lives and well being at stake. And so to me, that weighs more heavily in my thinking. But then there was a whole other kind of opposition. To the eighth principle, and that opposition was not that the wording should be better, or the order should be different, or we need a more careful process, and we want the kids at the vote. That argument was the eighth principle sucks, and you can't make me. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the feeling that I hold in my heart when I say, if we vote no to this, I don't know how we come back from it.
0: Or when people say blah blah blah, the sort of people who didn't vote yes to the eighth principle when they are imagining all forms of a. Ab- opposition so they're not thinking about the guy who spent his entire life fighting for gay rights and says it's hurtful to me that we say that one form of anti-oppression is more important than the others i don't think you should say be ashamed of yourselves this is how it feels to me when you say i should be ashamed of myself you're losing me right (laughs) even though i was on your side uh and they say yeah but we have to do that because these jerks have made us so mad Right. right and when we do that We are allowing the conversation to become dominated by opposite ends of the tug of war. That you should be ashamed of yourself, police, arguing with the racism isn't real, police. So then even though most people who are pro-eighth principle are not actually from the camp of anyone who disagrees with me should be ashamed of themselves. That's the voice I remember. And just like most of the people who are opposed to it aren't from the camp you were describing that's the perspective we mm-hmm. remember. And it all gets stuck
1: together, right? It all gets mushed in a really painful way.
0: This is the reason why I stained and ignored it, right, is I don't think that tugging hard on that rope does anything except elevate the tug of war. So I think what we should be doing is removing all attention from that and nurturing the good things And just starving it. And if they want to say those things, just don't pay attention. Because just like on Facebook, someone says something you don't agree with and you jump in to argue – that pulls it right up in the algorithm and then it inflates it and all of a sudden we have a big thing. Whereas if you just let that go, I often find as a moderator, if I just don't comment or Kathy, has this thing that she does sometimes where she jumps in with random emoticons on other parts of the thread. So she doesn't even deal with the problematic statement because she knows if she can elevate a different part of the thread, nobody will ever see it. So it doesn't matter. Right. It'll get buried. And so that steering and dodging thing, I think it matters what we elevate. It matters which questions we ask.
1: It totally does. We also have a challenge, though, and that's that as people who are trying to be inclusive and believe, like, you use don't have a set creed, and so we say we don't have to think alike to love alike, we have this feeling that every thought must be spoken. (laughs) (laughs) A little disdain in that. That every thought must be heard and chewed and considered. And one of the things we miss is that if you had a hundred people in a room and one person is really angry about something, our people tend the 99 to rally around to wanna help this person. Mostly, I think, because they hope that if they pour enough love and attention and care into this conversation, that person will come along. There's one other story that
0: I wanted to make sure to tell, um, and it ties into your microphone story, which I'm going to make jokes about turning off your microphone forever now. (laughs) Um, All right. So looking back at a time when I did this really poorly. Did, Did what really poorly? The whole shame thing. So there was a... Our Minister of Education in Saskatchewan was waging an attack on the inclusion of Indigenous content in our curriculum. So... A while ago, the We Are All Treaty People office made a curriculum that is really neat. So when I went through, we taught history, which was white history, and literature, which was white literature, and food, which is white food. And then in grade 11, you could take Indigenous studies where they told you about Indigenous people and why we should all feel guilty. And then out you went into the world with not particularly equipped for anything. Watching my children in kindergarten they start with history and they say this is european history and this is what was going on in what we call north america now at that time and when they go to food they're like and this is bannock and this is bread and everybody has some kind of fried dough in their culture let's look at all of them and so on and so forth and when they're and then they just teach about your own cultural perspective and they teach about newcomers to canada and they just weave it in with everything and sometimes when people like me hear about this and this was my response, as I think, oh, you're teaching my seven-year-old to feel guilty about residential schools, which is not at all what they're doing. Residential schools aren't coming up in right. a unit on this is what we all eat. There comes a point, like when they're right. teaching about World War II, and when they t- that they also talk about residential schools. It's not hidden, but it's age-appropriate. So it's just a matter of not right. centering the white perspective, and it's bled all the way mm-hmm. through the curriculum. The Minister of Education on the floor of the House of Commons said My grade eight child was told that as a white person, he should feel ashamed of his heritage and it counted less or blah, 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 blah. And that white people, the counted less is not a direct quote. White people are rapers and pillagers of the land is a direct quote. He was taught this in grade eight. It might have been grade seven. And she was using this as an argument for why that integrated curriculum should be removed and indigenous history should be taught separately, which in my mind as a parent was a huge problem because that curriculum is awesome. It's really good. It's also kind of weird to be like, I'm mad at what my kid was taught. I'm very upset. I'm going to tell the whole legislature and use it as a curriculum. So... My kids got home and I said, Eric, she said that her kid was taught this, but that's not what you've learned. You've told me, blah, 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 blah. And Eric said, because he's very wise, if you don't like that she's using what her kid was taught as her lens, why are you using what I was taught as your lens? Why don't you go look up what the curriculum says? So I looked it up. It was like a page and a half long. It said none of the things that she said. And so, and it was really good. I was super proud of it. Ironically, mm-hmm. I didn't write it, but I grateful. Grateful is the right word for it. And so I wrote a blog entry about... She says this is in the curriculum. If her child was taught this, it wasn't, they weren't supposed to be taught this. And she should take it up with the teacher, not talk on the floor of the legislature. A blog reader sent me, who was in that kid's class, sent me the notes of what that child was actually taught. And it was nothing like what she said. So she either misinterpreted which I understand when you have a very strong narrative, you can read into things. I do that all the time myself. That's how I got the ashamed and said we should be ashamed of ourselves story. That's a perfect example of how that something right. happens. So um, I also printed this and it took off in the paper because everybody loves a fight, right? So she lied about is how the story went and she should apologize to people and back down and blah blah blah. she has a history of quite a bit of other types of racism indigenous people were mad at her already so um some indigenous leaders contacted me and said let's run a campaign to have her resign as minister which at this point, she wasn't backing down. She kept doubling down. So had she said, oh, geez, I'm sorry, I misread that, that would be different. Right. She was systemically trying to dismantle this curriculum. Either she was lying or she hadn't read it at this point. Right. It might have been a calculated attack, right? I, I don't make... know. But the question is, was she qualified to carry out the job of education minister? And through maliciousness or incompetence, she wasn't.
1: Anne is shaking Anne's head no. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Thousands and thousands of people poured into this thing. I became the figurehead of it, partly because I'm a nice middle-aged white lady and partly because I was the one who had this piece broken on the block. So everybody was interviewing me. At the same time, this ties into you with your angry microphone mm-hmm. thing. That was the week that I had had to leave the home because my marriage was breaking down so all day long I was doing interviews with media and all evening I was in the freezing cold of November in Canada all loading my stuff into the minivan and loading it into the apartment so it was a very surreal week so I was not at my best just like you described Mm mm-hmm Mm -hmm. And when I would go on media, I remember vividly this one interview is at CBC Radio, and he said, how did you feel when you first heard her comments? And I didn't do that thing where I answer honestly, trust my gut and be brave, Mm -hmm. partially because I knew about all the wounded Indigenous people who were in the group backing me up. I imagined what they wanted me to say was shame based. And so I said, I was horrified and upset and on behalf of my tiny little child, I must protect the curriculum. And what I wish I had said was empathy when I first (laughs) heard her say that. Whether it was a mistake or just a knee-jerk guilty defensiveness as a white person, I empathize. I have had both of those experiences. And I want to live in a culture where you can make mistakes and walk them back. And I wish there was space for her to walk back that mistake. But it's now weeks later and she hasn't apologized. She hasn't given up on attacking this curriculum. And this curriculum is how we're going to get to a society where that isn't people's knee-jerk reaction. And so it isn't with self-righteousness that I am leading this charge she's making mistakes that I have myself made and may easily make again Mm -hmm. it is because she can't do the job for whatever reason and the curriculum is too important to let it go and I wish I had said that but because I was emotional and I was tired I reverted to that shame thing so maybe when i'm so upset about the shame thing part of it is because i know that's a mistake i revert to i become shame-based and self-righteous if mm-hmm. i let myself get too exhausted and part of the reason i have concern about this huge parliamentary process thing is i think sometimes that's unnecessary work it's contributing to the exhaustion and yeah. makes that virtue signaling shame-based we are all allies dah, 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 problem worse
1: Well, and I just want to pick up that when we learn about trauma and how trauma affects us and roots in our bodies, not in our brains, but in our bodies, shame is one of the reactions. Mm. And so that whole idea about we will make mistakes, we're all going to make mistakes. I say it from the pulpit a lot. I try to say it in my everyday life a lot. We're all going to make mistakes. We will disappoint you. The question is, what do we do next? Mm. Can we walk it back? Can we cry it out? Can we figure out a way to sort this out together? When you think about the eighth principal surprise vote in May last year, we were more than a year and a half into a pandemic. Mm. We were meeting online not in person and although that makes it more accessible to people all around the country it doesn't make for good connection and feeling and we don't you know we can't sing together in a way that sets us together in a harmonious group we can't really gel Mm. in the ways that we do when we're in person and so we all had a trauma a collective trauma underneath all of this work and then the the harm to marginalized people and the systemic barriers is also a collective trauma for those people and for people who are empathizing in a different way. And so in that moment, none of us could be our best selves. We can try our hardest, but none of us could be our best selves. And so I'm coming to understand with some distance from it how what I said could be perceived as, take this on as shame, but also how some people Like, I really didn't understand how you could look at that eighth principle and feel bad about it. And there are people who push back against the idea of accountability, like who's going to hold us accountable? Who's going to tell us what to do? Who's going to tell us the right thing? (laughs) The thing is, when you've been in a year and a half of collective trauma around a pandemic where nobody knows what's going to happen next. And we're all a
0: lot of energy around force there so-and-so made me wear my mask so-and-so's making me get vaccinated so-and-so's or so-and-so's making me stay home because they're unwilling to get vaccinated right right everybody feels forced to do things
1: everybody has an opinion and experiences harm in some way in this moment so we're all coming to this moment not our 100 percent selves and isn't that true of us all the time like Mm -hmm. this is a great example that we can lift up and people are so tired of the pandemic now that we like to pretend that it's not there which is another kind of trauma yeah right and so we've, we're carrying all these things and shame is a is it easy accessed response to that so i wish that i could have said in that moment when my mic came back on you know what this is really hard and it matters a lot to people and i wish that we could just hold it gently and carefully and say to all the people who are experiencing barriers we see you we hear you we love you we care about you and we are going to work to remove those barriers regardless of whether or not There is a principle. So we, you know, our process won't let us vote in this moment. Let's not vote in this moment. Let's just do the work together. I'm Liz James. I'm Ann Barker.
0: And we are so glad that you could join us. Wait, wait, wait. We have two special outro announcements. One is for everybody and one is just for patrons. The first announcement is that we are going to be at the Sanctuary Boston Worship Service on May 4th. If you are like certain podcasting co-hosts and you're thinking May 4th is not a Sunday, you're right. It's a Wednesday evening and that's not like the only thing that Sanctuary Boston does differently. They're very strange and amazing and they are my favorite worship community to be at. The music is incredible. The way they do joys and concerns is really beautiful and poignant and it is hands down the best worship experience I've been to. I'm hoping that because I will be preaching, it will still be very good. Uh, We'll see how that goes. But it is people that you know that are doing the service and people that you want to get to know that are doing the service. It will be funny. I will be telling funny stories. The other worship elements will be beautiful and meaningful because their worship team is really great. Kathy will also be a part of the service. I can't tell her exactly what part. I have several ideas and I haven't actually asked her yet but I will be asking her tomorrow and I am sure she will say yes because Kathy is generous and long-suffering like that and if I forget to ask her before the podcast comes out Kathy will you help me do worship on May 4th at Sanctuary Boston by which of course I mean online and there's information in the show notes and you really really should come the second announcement is that for our own worship services, worship services have been taken over by response time, which is all of our favorite part. So we had our first response time last week and it was a total blast. And so sometime in the beginning of May, there's a doodle poll out. We're going to be having a second response time. So that's basically patrons get together and Anne gives us spiritual guiding questions and we're supposed to do a go around, but mostly we just visit and... There is fun and joy and community and frivolity. And the only thing better than response time is, of course, Worship Online with Sanctuary Boston. All the relevant links and information are in the show notes.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cracked Cup, which is a Mirth and Dignity production. We'd like to thank all of our patrons for your generous support and for the ability to continue to make this podcast. If you'd like to become a patron, link is in the show notes. If you don't want to become a patron, we'd still appreciate it if you write and comment. The prompt for this week, do you have a pet and are they bothered by the chime sound in the podcast asking for a, a no particular reason? This episode is written and performed by Liz James and Ann Barker. Editing and producing by Anne Wendiko and the music is by Blue Dot Sessions.